Good day, bonjour, bienvenue, welcome everyone. Um, this is John F. McDropout. Uh, I'm here um, representing the Left Coast Atheists, and we're about to do a panel discussion on Euthyphro uh, by Plato, the infamous Socratic dialogue, I'm going to call it. Um, I'm joined here by Gibran Ludwig and o Elijah Lees, um, two of my, uh, my good friends and uh, former, uh, well, regular panelists, I guess, if, if this is going to be a regular thing. Um, we are uh, amped and ready to go on this one, I believe. So uh, we've been we've been kind of discussing it a little bit with each other uh, pre-show, um, but we you know just trying to get all our ducks in a row, and now I think we're ready to go. So uh, so welcome, guys, and thanks for joining me. Hi, right, thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Truly my pleasure, guys. Truly my pleasure. Um, we were uh, supposed to be joined by uh, Ozymandias Ramses. Uh, well, there was a rumor he may he may show his face, but uh, you know we don't. Uh, we don't we don't uh, we don't take those rumors seriously, you know. We uh, we kind of we make sure that we uh, we confirm all those rumors. Um, but right. it looks like he's not gonna be able to make it. So um, I did invite uh, a guy named Epicurus a Greek, uh, who go. Uh, he's a he's a little he does a little bit of posting on uh, Google Plus and YouTube. Um, if he does manage to show up, awesome. If not, then uh, then that's cool too. Uh, if anybody is watching, which uh, there is actually one viewer going on right now. Um, uh, feel free to uh, put in uh, questions or comments into the comment section below the video on YouTube, um, and I will be uh, at doing my best to keep track of those. Um, there is a little bit of a delay, so keep that in mind. And uh, yeah, and we'll be we'll be happy to address any questions or comments you may have. Cool guys. So I think that's uh, pretty much all the preliminary garbage. Let's uh, let's let's hop into it here. Uh, so, does someone want to give an introduction to what the dialogue is about? Like, give an overview of it. I'm, sure. Well, maybe maybe just an introduction into into what seems to be happening in the initial scene here, because I mean, it is a dialogue, so you're you're only getting the speech from these people, right? Uh, so, there's no action really. It's just it's just a discussion. But um, to to set the scene, I mean, it's it's at the uh, it's at the porch of the king Archon, which uh, I thought. Kind of, it's it's uh, isn't it saying that that's sort of um, the entrance to a courtroom, basically, uh, where there's about to be a litigation, right? Yeah, the, these two these two uh, apparently acquainted old friends are meeting one another at the courthouse steps, essentially, and uh, and they get into a discussion about uh, their the 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 litigation that, that well the, the 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 indictment that both of them are are involved in but they're two different indictments Socrates is being indicted and Euthyphro is indicting someone uh, and they they get into a discussion about that and their their reasons for uh, for their indictments and and possible defenses that they could use or in Socrates case his his defense and Euthyphro's uh, his justification for indicting uh, his father for murder um, so that's that's kind of the, the scene yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I mean, right off the bat, I mean, they kind of, they do kind of see, seem to know each other, right? Um, Euthyphro is, you know, asking Socrates why he left the Lyceum, which uh, I think is the school that he uh, taught at, right? Um, or the, you know, loose, loose grouping of people that he was um, involved in, in, dis in discussions with, right? Um, if I remember my Greek history or my my history correctly. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, um, it was, I believe it was where the 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 uh, academy eventually got founded was this this gymnasium that eventually became the uh, Plato's Academy after a while, but that was after Socrates died, but it was right. a meeting place long before it became the academy. 
Yeah, definitely. I, from what I remember, I mean, the Lyceum was was generally just a meeting place for philosophers, and it became more known as being a kind of a, a place where a lot of deep thought ended up taking place, right? So, okay. Yeah, that, that I believe that is correct. Uh, maybe someone in the comments will correct us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah sure, I'm sure someone will. There seems to be a Euthyphro seems to be much younger than uh, Socrates, based on how my reading of it anyway. I wonder. I'm wondering if maybe he would have been seen as a student, not as necessarily a student of Socrates, but someone who sort of sat under him in some way or another, and maybe this is kind of a, maybe Euthyphro feels in this dialogue that he has a chance to kind of, you know, show him what he's made of at this point. You know, it's, it's speculation at this point, right? But but there definitely seems to be, um, he know he's he definitely knows Socrates and knows Socrates' reputation. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, that that's that's made fairly uh, I think fairly clear. He one point says, uh, Socrates says to Euthyphro uh, something like, "You are as you are as much uh, wiser than I am than you are younger than I am." Uh, so he's he he clearly is meant to kind of be a, a the the backhanded compliment like, "Ah, you're younger than me, but ah, you're you're so much wiser than I am." Um, I, I at least that's how I interpret it. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, right off the bat here, I think I want to inject something into the conversation. I, I was discussing this with Gibran before, and I think he, he may have a problem with this, but um, I, I get the sense when I when I read this that Euthyphro is a bit of a douchebag. Um, it, it it seems to me like like he's got this he's got this this attitude, um, you know. And uh, right off the bat, I mean, the first thing he says is, "Why have you left the Lyceum, Socrates? What are you doing on the porch of the King Archon? Surely you cannot be concerned in a suit before the king like myself." And and to me, that seems like he's he's saying like, "Well, you know, Socrates, you're an all right philosopher, but I mean, surely you don't know anything about like court cases or you know piety or impiety or you know like or justice and things like that." Like he's it's almost like he's saying like you know. Go back to the Lyceum and you know discuss your your philosophical ideas, and we'll you know leave the leave the real work to us you know well, um, professionals. You know, yeah, when 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 you begin to get into um, the uh, actual charges that Euthyphro is making, the actual um, the case that he's coming to make, I think that and if you if you know anything about the history and, and the way that certain and and I think Socrates kind of brings it up about you know the way people are supposed to look at their fathers, right, and and what is appropriate. Um, to challenge your, your parents on. I think the whole idea with Euthyphro is he is sort of this guy who's really trying to... Um, he's in this really complicated case. He's doing something that most people wouldn't do, and he's doing he's he's supposed to be the ultimate moralist, right? He, he's, and so I think this all kind of goes with it. It's that sort of holier-than-thou attitude that he has, right? And I think, I, think, I think he's supposed to be portrayed that way, yes, as sort of a... Uh, you know, unpleasantly confident in in his um his views of himself. Yeah, I I don't know if I'd use the word he's 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 douchebag necessarily, but I think that 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 the reader is supposed to sort of get the idea that this is the kind of person they're dealing with. He kind of came across to me as a uh, Count Frollo from uh, The Hunchback, for any of you who might have watched that Disney movie. Oh, with a haughty kind of arrogant sort of sort of style, right? Um, exactly. Maybe maybe a little overconfident in his own abilities, I think. When I actually first read this, I, I interpreted this uh, in light of reading Republic first, and um, what that sounded like to me was him saying, well, this is below you, not that this is above you, but that, that, that kind of him elevating Socrates above himself. However, I think that you, all of your reading of it is more accurate based on the rest of the text, but taken on its own, and given what I know about what Plato 
thought about philosophy and, and these other things, it's not unreasonable to think that, that, that he was actually giving Socrates a compliment here. But within the context of the greater dialogue, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I yeah, I just uh, I mean it, it does, but it does seem like they they know each other at the very least, right? I mean, um, if if anything, Euthyphro may know Socrates by reputation, um, and, and it seems like Socrates knows something of Euthyphro, anyways. Um, they seem they seem to be at least familiar with it, uh, with each other, anyways. Um, and I know Euthyphro right right after that says, you know, I cannot believe that you are the prosecutor of another. Um, it, you know, it, it, suggesting that that you know Socrates wouldn't be known to be someone involved in prosecuting uh, someone else. Um, that yeah. there, there there may be sort of a, a a pacifism that's that's involved with them. Yeah, absolutely. I'd... Yeah, which which would explain why Euthyphro would want to go so strongly on the offensive here in in justifying himself to Socrates. Because like I said, he's already got a complex case on his hands, and then he's talking to someone who he he does not think would ever do something like what he's doing now, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I get that. In, that I, I I agree with that interpretation. I don't think that from from reading what else I've read, which is not very much, it doesn't seem like Socrates is the sort of fellow who would pursue court cases. It doesn't seem like something that would interest him very much. He seems like someone that's more interested in the, the knowing the good itself rather than than perpetrating some good. Uh, but that may just be my interpretation. But I I, I agree with you all. I think that's in character. Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. So, yeah, uh, nice to nice to see you, Eddie. How's it going, bud? Oh, not too bad. I just, uh, sorry about uh, hanging up on the earlier call, but I was looking over two of my younger cousins who are both two years old, and there were there was a lot of crying. So I didn't really think I could have multitasked as well as I could have. Uh, but... <laughs> cool. No problem. I'm uh, I'm also familiar with two year olds, and uh, there is a that's that's a perfectly reasonable explanation. I'll take your word for it. I'm not familiar, but <laughs> nor am I. <laughs> cool, dude. Did you have anything you wanted to uh, add to this initial uh, discussion here, or oh, I mean, I you've was, already yeah, you've already I was, got a. I was just curious whether we're going at this, we're going at the Euthyphro uh, dialogue from a more philosophical point of view in terms of how it might apply, or in that context, or if we were just looking at it from a more literary point of view. I think the goal is to get there eventually. All right. Yeah, I think we're going to go to the philosophy through the literature. We're going to start by discussing the literature and then, then transition to the philosophy from there. Because, I mean, that's the point of the text, isn't it? Mm, that's true. Yeah, I, I feel like there's um, there's a lot of uh, literature, or the, just this, the, the, the linguistic side to it, um, that I may not be really clear on. And so and I feel like that might be a really useful way to get at, uh, you know, the dilemma itself and, and you know, the idea of that, that, that he's trying to raise in this, so. I think that's I think that's where we're going here. So we're you know we're going to try to follow the text as much as we can and uh, and you know inject as much quotation as we can into it so I that see. we're we're not in in you know in danger of of kind of misinterpreting or or you know mis uh, summarizing what he's trying to say. Yeah, oh, not also I just wanted to add something. Since we're going through uh, Euthyphro's kind of demeanor, I was thinking we should uh, kind of look at it from a cultural perspective as well because. We're dealing with uh, Hellenistic Greeks here, and one interesting thing is, if Euthyphro comes across as being prideful, let's not forget that pride was. Uh, we're coming from a very post-Christian Western world. To us, pride, to us, pride is something you shouldn't uh, do if someone makes a lot of money and he kind of brags about it. You'd think, oh, what, what a rich douchebag, and that might come from uh, our Western Christian 
con context, whereas actually in the Greek world, pride was considered to be a rather virtuous, because if you were prideful, then, oh, I'm just exerting my proper place in society. There's nothing really wrong with that. So I think we might have that little cultural uh, mismatch going on. Yeah, entirely yeah. possible, yeah. I mean, I, I, may be, I may be interpreting it through a, a modern framework uh, yeah. by, by doing that. I think oh, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Um, I would like to say, though, that, that, that I think what I, rather than interpreting it necessarily through the cultural lens of Hellenistic Greece, I'm interpreting it personally at least through the lens of Plato and Socrates. Uh, and they certainly did not think that, that being prideful and boasting about all the knowledge that you have without being able to support that claim was a good thing. Uh, Socrates was very humble. Um, and so I, I, I think you're, you're right, but I, I, I personally am I'm trying to interpret it through his point of view, uh, the author's point of view, rather than, than through the cultural one. Yeah, this is what Socrates did. He would go, Socrates would go to these symposiums, and, and these were not, I mean, and this is where, uh, where Epicurus is right, I mean, these were not the places that everyone looked at, the, uh, the sort of the douchebags go to hang out together. I mean, people aspired for this sort of thing, and it was respected, you know, and, and all it was was a, a pissing match between people who were, you know, trying to be smarter than everybody else. But yeah, Socrates would go to these things, and he would sort of be the humble guy in the room that everybody was, you know, nervous about what he was going to say because they were worried about what it would, where it would go with them. But um, yeah, he was he was never the the first to speak or anything of the sort. Yeah, also, all let's this... not forget that Socrates might be, uh, although I'm not questioning his historicity here, but uh, there is a good context in which to assume that he might be a literary device and. Yes, he's very humble and he's very smart, and he's not someone who boasts about himself. But at the same time, he might be used as a way to demolish the uh, the status quo or the modern ideas that were going oh, around sure. at the time. And, and I realize this is a different discussion, but um, yeah. there's nothing wrong with questioning his historicity either. Thus, thus making way for Plato's uh, much better ideas that, because he was a student of Socrates, would have gone the A okay. Uh, I'm thinking it could also be from that, for also looking at the literary context. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, although I would say though that I think we have more of a reason to believe that the character in 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 Euthyphro is Socrates is closer to the real Socrates than the Socrates in Republic, because Euthyphro is part of the the four dialogues that, that sort of talk about his last days, and so we would expect them to be a bit closer to, to reality. But I could be we could be I could be wrong in that interpretation. It, that's just something. Well, well take a picture of Socrates. It's, it's, it's probably. I mean, this lends evidence to Socrates having actually existed and there being some knowledge of his last days. But, but this is just classic uh, taking a, an event that in so in someone's life and using that as a tool to make a larger point. I mean, I, I don't think that many people assume that this dialogue actually happened or even necessarily something similar to it. Sure. Right. But, but. I, I, I do think that there's there's a like a, a good reason to believe at least that he may have discussed some of the ideas in this dialogue at that time in his life when he was going to court. I, I would I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Oh sure, yeah, that's highly possible. Yeah. yeah. But the particular points made in here and the particular character of Euthyphro probably or, or uh, we don't I don't I don't have any reason to believe that actually happened as it as it is expressed here. But but yeah. No, yeah, I think Euthyphro is a literary device. I think his case is a literary device. Um, it's all set up to kind of create a really good opportunity to go through this. Yeah, I think that the key thing, though, is it's, it sounds in some ways like we may be accusing Plato uh, of strawmanning his opponents, but I think it's very clear from his dialogues that he didn't do that. That he. Really, oh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, 
I'm not saying we are. I'm saying that it may appear that we're doing that by, by calling him a literary device. Um, I, it's, it's I'm saying he's used as a literary device, not necessarily that he is one. Just to clear that well, okay, sure, sure, but but I mean, he he may have set these arguments up in such a way to to, to talk about his ideas really effectively, but he he clearly is trying to engage with his opponent's best arguments, and I I don't think he's strawmanning them by doing so. But he, he I agree, he certainly is setting it up in this this literary way. Yeah, I think that if he was trying to um if he wasn't trying to to present the best that he could, I think that this dialogue would have gone a lot further than it did. But I think where it cuts off. Represents what he's used to hearing, right? Fair point. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess uh, th th to some extent, I don't know really what answer they could provide after that point. It becomes really hard to defend any answer after this point. Uh, that I think maybe that's what he's representing there. Well, yeah, but I mean, he's pro and therefore that's the same thing, right? I mean, he hasn't heard it, so you know, this is where he he cuts it off. He's like, you know, leaves it open if anybody else can uh, get to this point. You know, I'm all ears. Sure, sure. Right, yeah. Cool. Well, okay. Let's uh, let's 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 move along here. I mean, that's a that's good background information. But I, you know, I think I think we can we can get into the text here a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, yeah. I mean, let's let's just kind of quickly go over. I mean, what's going on with with uh, Socrates? I mean, um, he's being accused by uh, well, he's, he says a, a young man who is little known uh, named Melodus, uh, who is of the deem of Pythis. I mean, is that is he saying that's the uh, the family of Pythis, or you know, he's the or I, I was I was curious about the the word deem. Um, does anybody did anybody find that? Is that in your translation, Gibran? Or uh, yeah, that that is uh, apparently it's a a, a, a like a, a subdivision uh, of Greece. It's a it's a part of it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a I just googled it just now. Uh, it's apparently a um, it's like a a, a domain. Uh, oh, so, so it's uh, maybe telling what locale he's coming from, what what location he is yeah. from. Okay, all right. Yeah, I think that's what he's saying here. Cool. Yeah, some translations actually define this in terms of like species and genus. It's really interesting. Yeah, because deem does seem to have uh, its its sort of root in you know the same thing as gene and meme, right? Um, there's. Yeah, I doubt that. I think it's probably actually from the same word as domain, uh, okay. spelled D E M S N A like that. Uh, which is a rarely used alternate spelling. I'd be willing to bet that's really what it shares a root with. Um, and apparently he has yeah. a beak. Yeah, right afterwards he says, you know, you perhaps you may know him by his his appearance. Um, he has a beak and long straight hair and a beard which is ill grown. Um, now, if that's a very that's a very odd uh, description of somebody, um, but it but yeah. it seems it seems specific, you know very very specific to a person. Um, that actually wasn't in my translation. What they said is an aquiline nose in my translation. Um, aquiline. Yeah, I I think what I think that may be the beak in that case may be a figure of speech and the, yeah, the yeah, aquiline nose is. Yeah. yeah, that's that's clearly what he means, right? <laughs> well, it's a funny description of him anyway. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's clearly he he says he says outright a few times that I mean that this Melodus is a young man, right? Um, and that you know he 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 stresses a bunch of times that you know he's he will be a great benefactor. You know he has yet to you know step forward, and uh, so there's you know he's 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 very suggesting that he's he's a young up and comer that's that's accusing him. Um, I do think that maybe to some extent his uh, his sort of um, 
plying him with with compliments in order to to draw him out in that case. But but in the absence of the actual person, he's just saying, oh well, he's this 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 really wise man, and he's going to do great things. I I don't know if Socrates actually had that high of an opinion of him. Yeah, well, he says that. He says that too, in about all of his opponents. Yeah. In every case, I've never heard him not do that. Exactly. It does seem. It does seem like Socrates always has to butter someone up before he starts to pick apart that their arguments. Um, and even even when he's buttering them up, there's there's a little bit. I always find that his compliments are are slightly backhanded. Um, there can be there can be you know, it, it's almost like he slips in the negative along with all the positives and gets his opponent to agree with all the positives along with that one negative. Uh, and then he uses that negative later to to. Uh, Destroy the guy's argument, and it's it's, it's just a, it's really a, a clever way of of uh, of, of approaching a dialogue. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so so when um, when he's describing his charges, he says um, that Melodus knows he knows how the youth are corrupted and who is their corrupter. And I, I noticed that's uh, that was actually a theme from Republic, wasn't it? Um, that's, yep. that's actually mentioned a few times. Um, uh, it seems was the corrupter of the youth. Yeah, I mean, it seems that seems to be the the charge that is uh, that they they end up uh, sticking to him, isn't it? Um, yeah, I believe it is. I, I haven't I haven't read all the uh, dialogues about his execution, um, but I, I do believe that is what he gets indicted for. Uh, yeah, godless. that is what it is. Yeah, and it's odd because I mean, he seems to uh, he seems to agree that the I mean, right after he says um, he. Of all of our political men, he is the only one who seems to me to begin in the right way with the cultivation of youth like a good husbandman and makes the young shoots his first care and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. Um, and it's, it's odd because he seems to be almost um, endorsing that, that, you know, that idea that, that the youth are where virtue must be uh, created and that if any corruption does seep into society, it is at the level of um, it you know fixing it is at the level of youth. You have to fix it with the young. Okay, I think I think he's being genuine here too. I don't think this yeah. is part of that buttering up. I think he really does think that that this person is doing this right. Yeah. Well, I think he he thinks he's doing it right, but incompetently. That he's, he's well, he obviously thinks he's person. yeah he's, he's he uses, misfired. He does obviously, use, he does yeah he does tend to use the, like a future tense with it. Um, you know, he says like he will be afterwards. You know, he's attended the elder branches. He will be a very great public benefactor, you know, and so they're, he's, he's suggesting that, you know, right now it's not doing much good, but he's, he's got the right idea at least. And I, you know, I think he's very genuine in that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And so right after that, um, Euthyphro kind of goes and, and seems to almost want to, um, like send a compliment back to Socrates, uh, and so he says. Um, in my opinion, is that in attacking you, he simply is aiming a blow at the foundation of the state. Um, and yeah. it, he's almost equating Socrates with uh, like foundational uh, logic of the state um, in in some ways. But I mean, if you if you really read it, you um, you kind of see it's it's almost like you're. Euthyphro is saying that Socrates isn't uh, is is almost superfluous to the to the suit that that Socrates is just a symbol of the state. Uh, he was ac within uh, his accusations are uh, as soon as he was put to death within the Republic. Just to bring out that bit of comparison, Socrates actually defended the state's right to execute him. He didn't even want. They even offered him a chance to leave, but he said, "No, no, I should be put to death because uh, one argument he actually did give was." Well, if I should break any of the state's laws, and I find myself just leaving the state, then I'm kind of attacking its foundation. Socrates, 
to an ancient Greek, being part of a city-state was as important as being uh, a member of a religious denomination, so it might have been some kind of martyrship, but Socrates, despite the state killing him, was actually always a huge uh, status and proponent of, of the state itself. Yeah, I, that's actually, uh, it's in uh, Apology and Phaedo that he, he, he defends the, uh, he says, if I was a man of the city before I, I, I was accused wrongly, and I obeyed its laws then, then I should continue to obey its laws now, uh, even though he thinks his accusation was incorrect. My translation differs slightly, though. It actually says, by attacking you, they're attacking the heart of the city. Um, that's kind of the the, the direction I, I thought they was going. Even even in this translation, that he was saying more that that Socrates, you're you're loved by so many, and you're loved by these youth, and you're you're getting them to rethink these things, and um, that this is counterproductive. You know, this this you're not an elder branch that needs to be removed, right? Yeah, I agree. That that is the interpretation that I got, and that seemed genuine. I but I, I could be I could be misinterpreting it. Okay, well, maybe I'm not saying that it was ingenuine. I, I think it, I think I was saying it's it's very it, it's almost indelicately put. Like he he doesn't take any time to um, elucidate his his meaning um, and just sort of outright states it. Right? Um, yeah, it's almost like like Plato by including that in there. You know, sort of just kind of throwing this tongue in cheek way in and being like, hey, you know, by the way, don't forget this happened, you asshole. <laughs> yeah. That's probably true. Uh, yeah, and okay, so um, yeah, let's see here. Uh, so right afterwards it says, um, in what way does he say that you corrupt the youth, or corrupt the young? Uh, and Socrates says, he brings a wonderful application accusation against me, which at first hearing excites surprise. He says that I am a poet or a maker of gods, and that I invent new gods and deny the existence of old ones. Yeah, this is this point is, is really kind of uh, born out in Republic. He, uh, yeah, very much so. Yeah, the, the, why this accusation is incorrect, um, I, I find that really interesting. I, honestly, I, I guess what, what really makes me, based on the things that I'm getting because I read Republic, I'm really wondering what I've missed because I haven't read most of the rest of his dialogues. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we all kind of get that sense, right? Like that there's, that there's, more, there's almost more uh, dialogue that's going on behind the scenes in all these dialogues, um, that there almost has to be this 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 storyline yeah. that's running underneath. That well, they're they're not. so the dialogues are so um, just snippets. You know what I mean? They never have much of an intro. They never have usually much of a resolution. I mean, sometimes they do, but they're they're usually just kind of thrown right in the middle of them. You know, they never have any kind of or much of a uh, you know this is what's actually going on. It's just you know just the conversations. Yeah, other than Republic. Um, well, yeah, Republic's a whole different animal. Yeah, but for most of the dialogues, I, I do get the sense that that's the case. Yeah, totally. Um, Euthyphro, right afterwards, um, says, uh, I understand, Socrates. He means to attack you about the familiar sign which occasionally, as you say, comes to you. Um, and now, he's, he, is he speaking uh, uh, specifically about a familiar sign, like uh, almost like a, a spiritual guide or anything like that? Um, it seemed... I know, I know, I've kind of heard that referred to before, um, but yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, yeah, I, I do, I do think that is the correct interpretation. There's this view that 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 he sort of went into these trance-like states um, where he would have these these moments, and and some there's some texts that talk about him having like a demon on his shoulder, almost literally, like something, some way of divination that he has that others don't have. Yeah. I, I guess what what um, what the text that I mine actually has an annotation there and it says essentially that uh, he he 
uh, he doesn't he, he only ever uses the the divine sign in a negative sense he uh, he uses it to say I was stopped by the divine sign or something like that not not that I did this because of the divine sign but that that it's sort of what what uh, it's sort of limiting rather than uh, um, encouraging but again I, I that's that's just what my annotation says I don't I don't know yeah, I mean, when I read um, when I read about it, it sounded like he was referring to um, his most critical of internal voices was what he was actually referring mm. to. He wanted he wanted something that would be so critical of his of his own ideas that any objection that was raised from the outside would be would pale in comparison to the objections that he was raising for himself. Um, and I, I think that's what he what kind of what he meant uh, by by that. Um, that yeah, I I think that that makes more sense than the spiritual interpretation. Yeah, definitely. Um, because I mean, right after I mean, Euthyphro says, I mean, he thinks you are a neologian, and he uh he's going to have you up before the court for this. Uh, he knows that such a charge is readily received by the world. Um, it's very it's very odd. It's a very odd way of putting it. But I guess I guess that is sort of, um, I guess that is a true statement. Like I mean, there it is it is sort of easier to simplify it to that, right? I mean, when you're referring to something. Uh, with a with a name like an object like a demon, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's easy it's easy for for the world to interpret that as you're saying there's a demon out there, right? I mean, well, you want to get the you want to get the heresy charge in there any way you can <laughs> in that culture. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean, yeah. He knows that such a charge is readily received by the world. I mean, he's he's admitting that that's that's an easier charge to place than just to say that your ideas are dangerous or that your your way of thinking is not appropriate, right? It's, it's that's yeah. harder. To or or that your your ideas come from a, a dark source that's uh, you know. Has other means or other uh, intentions, right? By giving you these ideas. Yeah, or that you're incorrectly claiming contact with the gods, which would also be heresy. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, he goes on. He says, um, you know, I know this well for myself too. When I speak in the assembly about divine things and foretell the future to them, they laugh at me and think me madman. Yet every word I say is true. But they are jealous of us all, and we must be brave and go at them. Um. And it's it's very odd. Like I mean, he 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 kind of he matter of factly just states that um he can foretell the future and that everything that he says is true. It's it's very it's like, I mean that's that's the other thing that sort of tipped me off as as him being a douche a douchebag, right? I mean that's a that's such a presumptuous thing to to say that I can foretell the future and everything I say is true. Like that is both of those statements are are crazy. And then you put them together in the same paragraph, it just seems. I think they're far more likely to take that kind of thing seriously and less presumptuously. For example, um, when Socrates decided to listen to what the oracle had to say about uh, himself being the wisest man when he proceeds to go around, he's taking that prophecy. He uh, he initially doesn't take it seriously, but then as soon as things go out, he finds it to be uh, rather true. And even in Greek plays, the gods do themselves uh, take a big element of the plot. So I think such a thing might have been not really extraordinary yeah. as it might seem to us. It might have been fairly ordinary. Yeah, no, it, it, that that's that was part and parcel of their experience. I mean, it, the, the issue they would have with him is that, oh, you're wrong, your, your interpretation of these things is wrong, or you're not getting the right divine uh, communication going here, right? They, they wouldn't say, you know, oh, you're just full of it, you're just pulling our leg when he makes these claims to know the future or whatever. I mean, it, it's not at all in that culture strange for people to talk this way. Yeah, my, my translation differs here again. It Rather than saying every word that I speak is true, it says that everything I foretold has come to pass or, or something similar to that. So rather than saying I'm, I'm always right, it's saying I've always have been right, which is yeah. a different claim to make. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's the uh, interpretation that, I, or that's how I interpreted it, even in the other uh, with the other language. Yeah, that's really, what you yeah. Meant. Every word I say is true, meaning everything that uh, I have predicted has come to pass. Yeah. It says, and yet I have foretold nothing that did not happen, which is more to say that I haven't been wrong yet. That's, I think that's I, much. Yeah, that's weird. That's that's much more clear in its meaning um, than than every word I say is true. That's that's odd that uh, that my translation kind of put it that way. Yeah, your translation um, sucks. Yeah, I guess I'm just gonna. I'm I gonna have the to exact same I'm one. I'm gonna send. I'm gonna send an angry email out to Benjamin Jallet right now. <laughs> He's probably dead. <laughs> well, then his, his nearest relative. Then. Yeah. I think I have the same one as you do. <laughs> yeah, Jowett's Jowett's an interesting translation. It, it kind of, I mean, uh, it kind of jumps between the use of gods and God um, a couple times in the in the dialogue, and it's 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 sort of hard to, to oh, wow. follow it. Yeah, I mean, when when you start doing that, it's very odd, and it's like it's gods, and then it, and then it uses God with a capital G, which is uh, really this it is throws. Real throws you right off, right? Like, you don't really know how to take that, you know, what, what Socrates is trying to uh, point to. You know, it's very, very different concepts. So. I think the question structure itself is just tough to go at, especially considering the language barriers, the cultural barriers, so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think that a literal translation is far superior. Like, when, when they start introducing their conception of God with the capital G into the book, that just, you're no longer reading Plato, you're reading Plato through the eyes of a Christian. Um, and I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to read Plato. Like, I'd be happy to hear their interpretation, but yeah. I don't want my reading of Plato to be directly influenced by their interpretation. Well, I have a problem even that with that language in, in the Bible, for example. I mean, I, I, when they change Yahweh to the Lord or something like that, mm. I mean, to me, you're, you're already changing the entire meaning to a modern reader. Well, the Jews do that, too, in their public readings of the uh, Scripture itself. They'll substitute... Uh, the proper uh, the proper name with the the title in the oral right right condition. yeah is that also I mean I, I I'm not I'm not claiming this is true but isn't that also to some extent maybe due to the 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 fact that the name itself is considered sacred and so that it should not be spoken lightly it is and it, Orthodox Jews themselves when they spell God they spell a G with a yeah. dash in the center mm -hmm. and then a D That's yeah but it, but modern Christians generally don't have that problem I mean, I mean some no. still do right some won't, won't don't want to read or say the name Yahweh okay. but most outside of them of, don't worry about outside it outside of the Jehovah's Witnesses not entirely yeah no I I think that really is them changing the text uh, and that's yeah. frustrating it's and it's and with the Jews, I mean, the text itself is is still still says Yahweh. They're just choosing to say Lord in order to to, to not abuse the word. Yeah, in, in most cases, yes. And that's more acceptable, and I, I think than than actually changing the text. I agree. I agree. I, I'm a I'm a big fan of I mean um, literary purity, if if that's a if that's a, a concept. Um, I I would I would appreciate to have as close to the, what the author wrote down as possible. Um, but I understand that I mean in translation there can be there's a lot of issues that uh that that do approach us in 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 understanding what what an author actually means. Um, just be sure to read uh all your Plato before you read Derrida is is what I would say. Um, it that'll that'll really throw your interpretation uh modules into into disarray. Oh, yeah. Okay, but anyways, let's let's try to move on here. Anyways, uh, that was that's an interesting interesting tangent, though. Um, uh, okay, so yeah, basically, um, you know, Euthyphro saying to, or I mean, Socrates is saying to Euthyphro, you know, um, that you know, th their laughter, you know, they they it wouldn't be so bad if they were just laughing at me, but they're you know they're they're in, you know they're indicting me here. I mean, this is this is a real problem, right? Um, 
and that um, he says that you know the problem is is that uh, I am uh, I have a benevolent habit of pouring out myself to everybody and even would even pay for a listener and that I'm afraid the Athenians think me too talkative um, and so he's, he's saying that um, you know the fact that he continues to try to impart his wisdom is the is the reason that they're that they seem to be uh, angry or jealous as uh, as Euthyphro puts it can I actually I think my translation again is better here um, can I can I read from this Please do. Uh, if I can find it uh, uh, well, my dear Euthyphro, to be laughed at does not matter, perhaps, for the Athenians do not mind, any, mind anyone they think clever, as long as he does not teach his own wisdom. But if they think he makes others to be like himself, they get angry, whether through envy, as you say, or for some other reason. Uh, and then he says down here, Perhaps you seem to make yourself but rarely available, and not be willing to teach your own wisdom, but my liking for people makes them think that I pour out to anybody anything I have to say, not only without charging a fee, but appearing glad to reward anyone who is willing to listen. If then they were intending to laugh at me, as you say they laugh at you, there would be nothing unpleasant in their spending their time in court laughing and jesting. But if they are going to be serious, the outcome is not clear except to you prophets." Yeah, it's uh, it's in, uh, it's interesting that he adds. Um, yeah, I mean, at the end of mine, it says, um, "And then what the end will be, only you soothsayers can predict." Um, mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting that he kind of takes that um, that staying saying and and injects it into the conversation, um, especially with Euthyphro, who claims to be a soothsayer. Right? Uh, it's almost as if um, he's he's kind of giving him the last word. You know, say here, you know, what what do you say about the future? You know, what what do you think is going to happen? So it's. As I think this may be one of those backhanded compliments, and also yeah, exactly. distancing himself from them. This and it's, really it's interesting. Uh, it's I interesting. Think, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Ed. I don't really think so. I think Plato would have honest uh, regard for Euthyphro, uh, especially in its power of soothsaying. Plato himself was a bit of a mystic who, when traveling, would go and have these uh, mystical kinds of trances that uh, that were, I think, said to have given him some sort of wisdom. It was kind of like a another way of knowing. You could possibly reason about these things, but you could also have these things revealed to you in such a way that deserve reasonable insight. So I think there is something to be said about mysticism being sort of a good thing in this context. Fair enough. But, I mean, that I want to, I, wanna, I, I, do, I do feel like this, this isn't my contribution, but this is the annotation. It, it points out that by saying you prophets, he's kind of distancing himself, which kind of goes back to our discussion about uh, the the allegation that he can see the future, claims to see the future, and that notation points out that because he's distancing himself from you prophets, he's kind of saying, well, that's really not what I mean when I say my divine sign. That was not my insight, though. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. I mean, um, I wasn't sure when I read it if uh, this was written before or after Socrates um, had gone through the trial already. And I felt like it was interesting that he, I mean, he asked them, you know, the end will only be what, only, you know, the end can only be predicted by you soothsayers or, you know, by you prophets. And Euthyphro right after says, I dare say that the affair will end in nothing, Socrates, and that you will win your cause. And I think that I will, as I think that I shall win mine. Um, and if it was written after Socrates was already executed, um, it's clear that Plato would be, would be jabbing at Euthyphro and saying, look it, he was totally wrong. He's not, he's, he 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 stated exactly what would, he thought would happen, and it didn't. Um, mm. in, that, in that way, it's fair point. Yeah, that is a good point. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't really know when the dialogue was written. I, I it seems reasonable that it would probably be written after he died, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that it that this shows whether it was before or after. I mean, I think that he I can see him definitely 
leaving it exactly like this if it was written after his death, you know, again, because the re- let the reader understand, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, that's, a, that's a tough one to know, man. Um, yeah, I, I guess I, the reason I think it would be written after he died is that Plato wrote this as, like, one of, of several uh, dialogues about Socrates' death, and if Socrates had just been brought to court and the charges had amounted to nothing, I kind of doubt Plato would have dedicated as much time as he did to writing about it. Um, that's that I guess would be. I think that, yeah, that, that's probably fair enough. Um, that's it, probably a pretty good inference, anyways. Um, there yeah, there wouldn't all... be there wouldn't be as much of a motivation for Plato to write if Socrates was available to write it for himself, right? Um, yeah, I don't, and I, I I'm not a scholar on these things, and but uh, it's a uh, um. I, just the way these things are written, like I've said before, the, the way Socrates is used as a literary device in these stories, I, I, I would be shocked if any of these were written during Socrates' lifetime. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think it seems unlikely. All right. Well, cool. then they... I, yeah, I think, I think it was kind of a little bit of a, of a, of a backhand at, the, at, at profits in general then, uh, that, that statement being included. Or at least Euthyphro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I, I just limited to Euthyphro myself. Yeah, no, exactly. Okay, well, cool. I think I think that's that's pretty good for an intro into uh, where kind of where kind of uh, Euthyphro's or where where Socrates is kind of standing in this dialogue. Um, next up, kind of goes into Euthyphro's suit. Um, now he's he's the pursuant, and he is. Um, I mean, right off the bat, I mean, uh, Socrates asks, you know. Uh, who who are you pursuing? Um, and 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 Euthyphro says, "You will think me a madman when I tell you." Um, you know, already Euthyphro acknowledges that that what he's doing is is considered very, um, it, if not, I don't know, kosher. Let's say, let's use the word kosher. Um, it's not it's not done. It's not uh, it's not something that uh, that people would ordinarily uh, be thinking of doing or or think it was a pious act. Um, what did, what did you guys think about when, when you first hear it, hear it that um when he when he says it's it's my father um and and Socrates is, is you know exclaims you know my your father my good man you know like it just it seems like he's he's so surprised at the at the you know the the presumption that Euthyphro uh could think to prosecute his own father so what what did you guys think about that yeah yeah that's uh th- this whole case like I said before is is set up in such a way to be it's full of these mo. I mean, it's not even if you if you go further, it's not even like a direct murder, right? It was like a murder through neglect. Um, and yeah, you don't back then. You you don't bring a court case against your own father ever. I mean, it, it, just as a matter of respect for authority, if not you know family, it, the the whole thing is set up to make you think. You know, this guy must really have a good reason for doing what he's doing. He must really have a um, a, a good grasp on uh, piety. You know, which is where we're gonna go, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's meant to set up. Well, I mean, if we're just looking at it as a literary device, I mean, I think it's meant to set up the, the, the extre- the extremities of piety, right? I mean, um, where there's, you know, where thinking about what's holy, um, comes in contact with the different values that you you tend to have in in regular life, right? Um, you know, between familiar family relations and you know the value that you place on on Familiars um, and versus yeah. versus uh, uh, servants or, or strangers. I mean, you've got to get the you've got to get the dialogue to a point where Socrates would be. I mean, with all the, that he's got to deal with, he's he's got to have, be speaking to somebody who who he really thinks is going to bring or who you know he 
you know, maybe not really things, right? But who, who he would be willing to ask, you know, all right, I'm, I'm on my way to court. You obviously really know about this topic. I really would love your insight here at the last minute. You know what I mean? Or yeah, at least, I mean, yeah. Yes, I mean, Socrates, right off the bat, I mean, I mean once, once Euthyphro says, of murder, Socrates, you know, Socrates says, by the powers, Euthyphro, how little does the common herd know of the nature of right and truth? A man must be an extraordinary man and have made great strides in wisdom before he could see his way to bring such an action. And, I mean, I think it's meant to set up that, I mean, Euthyphro must believe he knows the, the pious and the impious uh, in, a, in a very specific way in order to have attempted such a suit. And there's there's actually some and people take for granted that Socrates is 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 sort of like stringing this guy along, right? Um, but there there is a lot of debate about whether or not he Socrates believes Euthyphro to be telling the, or to really be an expert in morality throughout this whole thing. Um, some people think that he he's being very genuine when he asks for Euthyphro's help here, and only as it goes he realizes that he's put his eggs in the wrong basket. I, I don't know if I agree with that. But uh, some people definitely take that seriously. I think that's a perfectly reasonable interpretation. I could go either way. Um, it 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 does seem that he. I mean, if that's the case, though, then the earlier compliments cannot be assumed to be backhanded because then, if that's the case, then he's not just buttering him up. He really is saying, honestly, mm -hmm. you're this really wise young man, and I want to want to learn from you. Backhanded um, from the point of view of Socrates or from Plato? Uh, I think it's identical in this case. Yeah, no, not really, because Socrates himself as the character, if he initially thinks, "Oh, this is Euthyphro. He's a mm. he's a prophet. He's a bit of an oracle. Uh, everything he's kind of prophesized was right at this time." Whereas Plato himself could say, "That's what Socrates thinks." But I'm going to interject this little bit here that all signal to the reader. Yeah, Socrates is being a little duped in this situation. I guess it just doesn't seem like Plato to make Socrates ever look wrong. Like or not, yeah. Plato really venerated Socrates. I I don't. I mean, it may be the case. I'm not saying you're wrong, but it, it just seems out of character for Plato, which is ironic because he's not a character. Well, the the conclusion of the dialogue stands when whatever interpretation you use that that Euthyphro is not who he claims to be. You know that that is the final sort of point. I think so. That has to be taken into account. Yeah, I think it, it may be maybe more of a, a setting him up to 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 fall later, right? Um, you know, to say a man must have made great, you know, extraordinary man must have made great strides in wisdom, uh, and then you know by the end of it, he's he's, he's going to pull those those pegs out from under him, right? I mean, he's not he's not going to look extraordinary or wise uh, by the end of it. So it's in, in a way, it's almost setting him up for a fall. Hmm. Yeah, and he doesn't help at all. I mean, even after the portion we just read about um, that huge compliment he gives, you know, uh, you must be an extraordinary man and, and made great strides in wisdom. Um, you throw his next word is indeed a man like that must be, you know. Uh, to um, oh, I, I may have lost my train of thought. Damn it. Oh, oh, I know what I was gonna say. I think this is actually the first passage you've read that I think your translation is better than mine. Uh, I, I just. He doesn't. He doesn't say the the bit at the beginning about um, how little does the common herd know of the nature yeah. of right and truth. I love that line. It's just. It's so. It's so well put. You know. Um. You know how how misled are all of us. You know to to think that you are wrong. You know that that all of us think you're wrong in doing this. You know. It's it's so. It's such a such a poignant way of putting it. Yeah. The the what what it says instead is uh, good heavens certainly Euthyphro. 
or Euthyphro, most men would not know how they could do this and be right. It is not the part of anyone to do this, but of one who is far advanced in wisdom. Or it's not the part of, of just anyone to do it. Uh, yeah, I don't think that that's put as well in this translation, actually. I, I think it is put better in that one. I, because he references the, 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 the being above, again, uh, the common person later on. And I, it would have been more poignant if they'd actually mentioned that particular line early on. Yeah, but, exactly. The idea of, of the Superman, the, the, the one above, above the, the regular man, right? Um, yeah, and he, he does say that, but he doesn't, he doesn't use the line... The herd, which I think is excellent in there, so I'll yeah. give credit where credit is due. <laughs> All right, cool. So Jowett had a few things right then. Cool. Well, okay. Well, let's move on here to the to the next bit here. Um, um, you know, Socrates is uh, he's he's surprised and he says, well, I suppose that the man whom your father murdered was one of your relatives. Clearly, he was. For if he had been a stranger, you would have never thought of prosecuting him. Uh, and Euthyphro, right away. I mean, this is this kind of struck me right away. Um, as as right off the beginning, um, you know, maybe it's just from my fundamental roots, but this this kind of struck me right away here. So I'm amused, Socrates, that you're making a distinction between one who is a relation and one who is not a relation. For surely the pollution is the same in each case. If you knowingly associate with a murderer, when you ought to clear yourself and him by proceeding against him, um, yeah. So I mean, that's that's basically the end of the sentence there. Um, so I mean, it, to me, that it sort of suggested the idea of. You know, he says, "For surely the pollution is the same in this in in each case, as if as if um the idea of impiety is like a mark against one's soul." You know, like there's like there's almost a, a phys he's almost referring to a physical, um, a physical thing that that uh, accompanies um the idea of impiety. Do you, uh, do you guys did you guys get that sense? Or no, I would love I... to hear Gibran's translation on that line. Oh, okay, I think, sure. I think that is yeah. I think I might be getting the wrong idea about. About yeah, so so yeah, the uh, for surely the pollution is the same in each case. That was the line that really caught me. Um, so he says, it is ridiculous, Socrates, for you to think that it makes any difference whether the victim is a stranger or a relative. One should only watch whether the vic or whether the killer acted justly or not. If he acted justly, let him go. But if not, one should prosecute, even if the yeah, killer shares your hearth and table. That's Boy, weird. That that almost completely destroys that that for surely the pollution is in the same in each case or does it except he then says the pollution is the same if you knowingly keep company with such a man and do not cleanse yourself and him by bringing him to justice so he does use pollution again oh. you know that that happens oftentimes with um like greek and latin translations is you know they'll the stuff will be moved from the beginning of a sentence to the end of a sentence so that's probably what happened here it looks like i've got it just out of order well, no, that's actually a new sentence when he says the pollution. Um, it's just I think he does a slightly different way of getting to that that sentence. Uh, the thing right before it is translated differently. But I think it does change the meaning of it to some extent. Um, I, I guess... I guess, like, I don't see the pollution as necessarily being a physical thing. It it, it does seem to me to be a figurative tool. Um, I could be wrong there, but it does sound more like he's saying, like, the... the the, the the pollution of our justice or something like that not not necessarily associating it with something physical um, but I could be wrong yeah the idea is the the it, it corrupts your um, character to yeah, knowingly exactly. spend time with someone who's um, that you know has committed these crimes without mm -hmm. taking justice yeah, but it almost seems to me like like he's suggesting that um, impiety is um, contagious you, you know what I'm saying like there's like there's and I suppose, in a way, there he's he's probably true. I mean, it, who you associate with does tend to have not contagious, just eroding. I think. Yeah, that that to not do it is to be impious. So in that sense, sorry, meeting. Um, no I apologize. Um, he's saying though, it is impious itself to not prosecute the impious. 
So in that yeah. sense, it does spread. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think later on he does even get a a, a better definition of it here. Um, well, let's let's go into what his father actually did because I think it's it's sort of interesting the the story itself. It's got got a lot of specifics that seem to have like a, extenuating circumstances um, that you know I think a courtroom would really have trouble with. Um, it says here that um, the dead man was a poor dependent of mine who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm in Naxos. Um, the one day and and one day in a fit of drunken passion he got into a quarrel with one of our domestic servants and slew him my father bound him hand and foot and threw him in a ditch and then sent to athens to ask of a diviner what he should do with him meanwhile he never attended to him and took no care about him for he regarded him as a murderer and thought no great harm would come to him even if he did die and now this is just what happened for the was such was the effect of cold and hunger and chains upon him that before the messenger returned from the diviner he was dead so I mean that's basically the whole story. Um, all the details that we're kind of get uh, out of out of um, Euthyphro about the the court case that he's involved in here. Um, and it, you know it seems to me like you know at the very least I mean it says it says right in it that I mean he thought that no great harm would be done even if he did die. And I, you know to me that seems like willful negligence at you know at the very least. I mean he sort of. He sort of understood that the consequences of the action might be that this this person dies, and yet did it anyways. Um, yeah, I think what he's saying is is there would be no injustice done if he died anyway. I think that's more what they're saying, and in sense of harm. Yeah, because I think he does put it like that in just before that. You know, if just you know if the real question is whether the murdered man has been justly slain. If justly, then your duty is to let the matter alone. Um, and he kind of making a distinction between. Um, uh, an unjust murder and a just murder, right? That there's that there's qualifications that would make each um, each one. Uh, what one am I looking for here? Well, just and unjust. unjust. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. yeah. Uh, to, just to note, my translation does not differ significantly here at all. The only difference is that they use anger instead of passion, which I think um, I think passion is the more literal translation, but anger is what he closer to what we would interpret him as meaning. Um, and rather than chains, they just say bounds. So not significantly different. But to comment on the just thing, though, I think it's really interesting because he seems to be he seems to be uh, essentially talking about the same view of justice that the sophists in Republic have that that Plato or well Plato and Socrates just utterly destroy. Uh, and I found that really interesting, is that I think that Socrates may even disagree with him that the just thing to do is to murder the unjust, uh, based on. He he says is the I mean in Republic he says is the nature of 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 the the horse ever improved by injuring it uh, is the nature of a man ever improved by by injuring that man uh, and if the nature of a man is 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 how just they are then justice perpetrates injustice if justice is to injure the unjust anyway sorry that's that's a summary <laughs> of his view. Yeah, totally. No, I I, uh, I agree with you. I think he does cover a little bit in that uh, coming up here, anyways. So what's the? Uh, I think I think he does. He does kind of talk about attending and uh, whether what the goal of attending is and things like that. So there's there's sort of this this idea of of uh of justice being being attention to the gods. But like well, we can we can get to that here. Um, basically, I mean, um, Euthyphro says, I mean, his his family are mad at him for for um prosecuting his father for taking you know taking the side of the murderer. Uh, and that um, they said that um, he did not kill him, and that if he did, the dead man was but a murderer, and I ought not to take notice. 
for that a son is impious who prosecutes a father, which shows Socrates how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety. Um, and I think right there, I mean, he's he's kind of suggesting that he has access to the gods' thoughts on impiety and piety there, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's he's, definitely the implication. The, the idea, because you get this situation where, I mean, just reading it again, I, can, I mean, you can see four or five different spots where... You're you're dealing with tough moral questions, right? And then you got you got Euthyphro who's who says that you know this was all just so obviously the right thing to do to me. I don't know why people are having such a hard time with it, right? It even says at the, at the uh, um the best of Euthyphro and that which is distinguishes him Socrates from other men is his exact knowledge of all such matters, right? Yeah. So I mean he can he can see this situation that anyone I mean even Socrates would admit is complicated. And say no. It's actually very, very, very simple. If you know anything about piety, of what the right thing to do here is. Absolutely. No. This is this is one of those passages that's kind of setting him up for a really hard fall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he he asks Euthyphro right out. I mean, he says, uh, "Is your knowledge of religion and of things pious and impious so very exact that, supposing the circumstances to be as you state them, you are not afraid lest you may be doing an impious thing and bringing an action against your father?" Wow, that's a long sentence, but yeah. And I mean, yeah, he's 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 directly, I mean, challenging him. Like, man, are, are you certain about that? I mean, that is a that is a large charge to be leveling against someone you know, yeah. right? Like, and it's not, and, and and taking action against your father this way is not just something that you know after it's over he would have to sit and think, hmm, I wonder if that was impious or not. I mean, th these are going to have severe real world consequences for him and his family, right? Absolutely. I mean, just his just his name being dragged through the mud, especially in that culture, is 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 going to change his entire life. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems to me like a lot of a lot of ancient history is, is wrapped up in the reputation of your father. It seems like your father's reputation is very important to a person. So, in that way, I mean, it seems like just bringing an accusation against your father would be like shooting yourself in the foot a little bit. Um, yeah, because he he risks um, uh, basically corrupting his or polluting, if you want to use that word, um, his family name by doing this, and thus himself and his own descendants. But you know he's he's so convinced that he's right here that that he thinks he'll kind of go down in history as as the great hero who did this this incredibly pious act that most people wouldn't be able to do or even know to be able to do. Plus, yeah. uh, let's not forget in that culture there were really two ways to get uh, signs of respect. One was from your family lineage, in which we just discussed, and the other was in terms of the occupation you would do for the society itself. So Euthyphro, maybe unlike some other members of his family who might just be. Uh, if not lab just laborers or landowners, he's a religious priest. He has his own. Um, he has another way of garnering honor amongst this uh, society that maybe his family wouldn't really have access to. Yeah, I think he's so confident that he can. He can un that he can still have a good reputation even without his family. And that's kind of a, I think another way that Plato shows uh, him as being arrogant. Uh, yeah, and, and no, yeah, I think that's that's maybe. What he's doing here? Yeah, I mean, uh, and uh, Ruthavo doesn't help his case right afterwards. I mean, he says, <laughs> right after Socrates asked him that, um, he says, the best of Euthyphro and that which distinguishes him, Socrates, from other men is his exact knowledge of all such matters. What should I be good for without it? And I mean, that use of the third person twice in a sentence 
is is the most douchey thing I think I've heard you hear <laughs> yeah. in the whole dialogue. You're just like, what? Like you're gonna you're seriously gonna say the best of Euthyphro. You're gonna refer to yourself and then refer to the best of yourself. That's that's that, that is the universal. That is the universal sign of of ultimate arrogance, or at least Elijah seems to think so. So yeah, I mean I, I mean what what defense would you guys yeah what what. <laughs> <laughs> what defense would you guys, I mean, give for give for Euthyphro? I mean, in that in that case, I mean, that is, it seems like it seems like Plato is kind of setting him up to be, you know, ultimate, like you know, that the further he gets pressed on his beliefs, the more douchey Euthyphro is going to get. Um, he's gonna he's gonna continue to get more and more, you know, sanctimonious and be a little bit more of an asshole about it, you know. Yeah, I guess I I don't think that like that in and of itself is enough to say that they're he's wrong necessarily. Uh, but but I certainly agree that that, that he likes to. He, I think he's doing this in a in in the sense to contrast him with Socrates, who is like the utmost humble man who who knows a ton, but he never claims to know anything. Where Euthyphro clearly doesn't know anything about about piety, but he claims to know everything. Um, it's, it's almost it's, like foil um, characters, right? I mean, they're they're yeah. so they're so diametrically op opposite that they, you know it's the the characteristics are so obvious, you know. There's this thing I uh, heard a while back, but I think it really applies here. Don't get cocky unless you can somehow back it up. And basically, the, what's interesting is pride isn't really that bad if like if you're really proud of an achievement, then it's understandable why you could get so excited. And especially in the Greek context, if you're rightfully proud, the Greeks had no problem with that, but. Euthyphro himself is prideful for various, for horrible reasons, in, in which Socrates will show him up in a bit. So, that I think that's the com comedic angle. He's prideful of something he should not be prideful for. So I think that's really where we can sympathize with the Greeks. Yeah, I mean, it's, Socrates is—he kind of takes that that douchiness uh, a little. Bit. He he almost takes it with a, a grain of salt, right? I mean, he, right away he just says, "Rare friend, I think I cannot do better than to be your disciple." You know, <laughs> immediately kind of ingratiating himself to him. He's like, "Oh well, you know, you must know everything. I I I, I should become your student, right? Obviously, you know, you you are you outstrip me, and it's it's this very." It's this very weird dynamic that uh, that he's kind of building with with Euthyphro, almost almost you know setting him up to be you know teach me your ways, <laughs> oh oh wise one. Um, hey, uh, I'd like to point out that we're an hour in and we've probably gotten through three or four pages. I noticed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually I've got about twenty minutes. Uh, sure. I've got to get ready. No, to go no there. trouble, guys. I was going to mention. Um, you know, we might as well just split this up into. Two parts at least. Um, if everybody's I was okay actually going to suggest that, that yeah. Um, it, it might even be three at the rate we're going, but I think I think once we get into um, Euthyphro's definition of piety is where we really get into the more con contentious um, stuff. Yeah. So so I think right here, I mean, this is this has been such awesome. Uh, I don't know, pooling our, our knowledge on this on this uh, the the background information and, and you know uh, a lot of with the cultural stuff here and, and just your guys's translations have been, has been really helpful. So right off the bat, I, I like to say thank you guys. You know, if uh, if any of you need to drop out right away, just let me know. Um, um, Eddie, are you are you okay with doing an, another one of these, man? Um, I think we've we've both pre uh, all of us have really appreciated your your input so far. Yeah, yeah I was mind uh, when and where. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, we'll we'll have to we'll have to discuss that. I know Christmas is a, a bit of a busy time for people, so we'll uh, I'll be sending out invites to to all of you guys. Um, you know, and uh, absolutely, uh, if you want to re-listen to this and and uh, bring up notes and challenge us to, on anything, we can we can do that also. Yeah, I mean, I think we can probably continue for a little bit still, though. Um, absolutely. Um, there's there's a lot. I still got a ton of notes here that I I really like to get to. Um, it, right. I mean, right in that paragraph, actually. Um. He, I mean, he's he's basically ingratiating himself, and he says that you know, uh, 
I will, you know, it, during the court case, I'm going to go to Melodis and I'm going to say, I've learned uh, what piety is from Euthyphro, and, and ev everybody knows that Euthyphro is a great theologian and sound in his opinion. You know, he's buttering him up a little more here. Uh, and the, but he says, you know, you ought to approve of him. You know, if you approve of him, you ought to approve of me. You know, um, and uh, you know, you should be begin begin by indicting him who is my teacher, uh, and uh, who will ruin the young but the old, right? And uh, right after that, he says, that is to say, um, uh, of myself whom he instructs, and of his old father who he admonishes and chastises. Um, and I think it's oh, man, I love that last line there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting that he he equates himself with. Uh, Euthyphro's father in that case. Um, he actually points out that, listen, you are you're pointing out that your father did an impious action, and Melodus in the same way is doing is pointing is pointing out that I did an impious action, and so hopefully both of you will have great re you know will be able to back up that claim. You know he's 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 almost he's almost putting both court cases in mm -hmm. Euthyphro's uh, hands at that point. Yeah. And the very last part of the paragraph, um, he, he basically says straight up, you know, if he won't shift this indictment from me to you, I'm going to repeat it to the court, right? Yeah. So it's almost like a threat. He's like, all right, now you, you know, you better be able to back this up because this is what you're going to get for, for your, uh, your arrogance so far. Yeah, I got to say, I, I'm enjoying talking about this, but I think that we've gotten a bit too caught up in the text and analyzing their relationship, and we're not actually talking about their ideas for the most part. Um, it's um, possible. Um, and... I guess I think we may have talked a little, like probably enough about how Euthyphro is this really arrogant person, and maybe we should talk about why he's wrong and his arrogance. <laughs> yeah, yeah totally. I think that was kind of the idea of splitting it up, you know, to to get this, uh, to finish the historical conversation once and for all, right? Yeah, I think because I think it's useful, but you're right. You're right in the fact that I mean, we're not really hitting on the the major ideas of of a piety and piety um, by by starting like this. So, I uh, I take your I take your point with that. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, right after this, I mean, Socrates does tend to he's 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 starting to prod um, Euthyphro, uh, and you know, into saying that you know, um, you know, I adhere, you know, I I adjure you to tell me the nature of piety, impiety, um, which you say you know so well, um, you know, and uh, let's see, his first, let's let's get into it here. Um, his first uh, his first query into it kind of goes into um, you know he's asking what are they what is piety and piety uh, is not piety in every action always the same and impiety again is it not always the opposite of impiety and also itself also the same with itself having as impiety one notion which includes whatever is impious um, now that is that is a bit of a mouthful when he kind of puts it that way. Um, but I think he's. I think what he's getting at is, is um, that you know, isn't there always one thing, a uh, one thing that we could use to categorize piety and impiety? Um, isn't there a, a, a like a, a property that makes something pious? Yeah. Is there not? Is there not just a single thing that makes something pious or impious? Essentially, there's one thing that they all share in common that we can use to determine the impious and the pious in every situation. I think that is essentially what he's saying. In fact, in my translation, he uses forms uh, to say they all have one form, um, but not oh, wow. in the not in the Platonic form sense. Uh, my translation points out this is before that really got developed. Oh, okay. And he's more using it to say shape, like like in the the way that the different statements of a of of a, of a type may have the same shape and they have the same form in that sense, but not a form in the Platonic sense. Yeah, I think I think my translation uses the word notion uh, has yeah. the same notion, which is sort of a, an interesting way of putting it. I don't I don't know if I agree exactly with um like a definitional term of notion 
as far as that goes. But I sort of I sort of understand what he's saying. Um, because he's talking about a category, um, which is it's it's sort of harder to to narrow that into a notion, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, and Euthyphro agrees with that with that uh, assumption that there that there should be one notion um, that of for pious. Um, and he says, what is piety and impiety? And uh, Euthyphro here gives his first definition of uh, piety. Um, and let's 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 kind of uh, I think we'll wrap up the this initial podcast on his first definition of piety and see see if we can get to his um his brief clarification afterwards. Um, in the, in the next good. one. Cool. All right. So his first piety um, definition here is. Uh, well, he first starts out and he says, "Piety is doing as I am doing, that is to say, prosecuting anyone who is guilty of murder, sacrilege, or any other similar crime, whether he be your father or mother or whoever he may be. That makes no difference, and so to not prosecute them is impiety." Um, so he kind of gives it there, and uh, a little later he kind of gives a clarification. He says, "I mean that the impious, whoever he may be, ought not to go unpunished." Uh, and he says, I mean, that's that's sort of his his initial definition of of piety. Um, that's kind of what I gathered, anyways. Yeah, his his first answer here seems to be just strictly situational. I'm almost something that he seems to have wanted, kind of had on the tip of his tongue for the last few weeks. You know, having this argument with other people, and he's probably repeated this this spill at least multiple times. Uh, yeah, I think what Socrates points out immediately is this is not a definition. This is a description of things that are pious, rather than a definition of what it is to be pious. Oh yeah, no, it's 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 not. It is because for most people to even ask that question, you know, what is even being good in this case? This is what he's used to defending, right? He's used to saying, "Well, I have a good reason to do what I do because here's uh, Zeus doing the same thing, right?" And yeah. he's clearly the most righteous of gods. But yeah, yeah I mean, at the end of the day, it's just an example. It's just a, an analogy. Yeah, I mean, he does he does go right to. I mean, he he is using himself as the as the exemplar, and then I mean, he does tend to you know analogously show that Zeus. Um, what does he say? Uh, who is regarded as the best and most righteous of gods, uh, and and it yet is admitted that he bound his father Cronos because he wickedly devoured his sons, and that he too had punished his own father Uranus for a similar reason. Uh, and it says here in a nameless manner. I, I, I assume that was just uh, it's unknown how he punished him. Um, well, my book says castrated. So. Uh, oh wow, uh, nameless <laughs> manner. That's, uh, yeah, I think I'll put a little note by there. <laughs> Castrated. That's that's much different. Uh, nameless. Yeah, I, I might not name that either. Just to reduce the amount of cringes. Killing's okay, but castration goes a bit too far. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't mind being killed. Um, so uh, yeah, exactly. So I mean, he's he's pointing out that that Zeus um directly in indicts his own father, and that and so in that way, analogously, he is doing what is pious by copying the gods. Um, uh, so. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is a really common idea uh, in, in religious circles, which is to say that because what the gods do is good, we merely must mimic the gods rather than search for what is good independently of them, which is which is kind of the whole point of the entire dialogue. But but no, I, I think that's a really common idea, and, and he's justifying his actions in terms of the actions of his god, which is something that Christians do, for example. They are, well, God did it, or Jesus did this, therefore this is good. Yeah, in fact, there there's a lot of... Uh, in a lot of Christian communities will say that one of, if not, in, in some cases, the primary purpose of Jesus even being here is just to give us this set of examples to follow, you know, because, oh, now we have him in human form walking around, kind of like these Greek gods, right? And we can look at him and say, okay, these are the situations he was in. How, And in order to be moral, we need to do the exact same things that he would do. 
um, as the token Christian in this discussion, uh, you're, you're just, anything but you're anything but token, Eddie. We'll, yeah, we'll, you're not we token. We value, man. We're, you're the valuable theist in in the discussion. Oh, wow. If you uh, want proof that you're not token, we didn't have a Christian in the last discussion. So I, we, I'm just that's just a bit tongue in cheek on my part. Uh, so <laughs> seriously, I I just wanted to uh, point out that. And I know you guys already prefaced it by saying some. I would also just like to point out that uh, Jesus' uh, ministry was... The idea that it was being a mostly ethical notion is fairly new in circles. I mean, the notion of Jesus being the great ethicist is probably uh, oh, yeah. an 18th century liberal Christian doctrine when they were like, okay, we kind of realize that this Bible isn't historically up to snuff, but we got to... Uh, keep it popular somehow. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. I mean, even today, most Christians wouldn't say that Jesus was just a good example, right? It's just the most liberal of the Christians who do that, you know, the Unitarians and things like that. I would actually point out that Jesus, I personally, in the theological sense, believe that Jesus was rather here to uh, not necessarily give a good example or give moral teachings. Uh, there are already a plethora of moral teachings that, uh, were, that were doled out by various prophets to come Jesus's life was meant to embody the form, or it was meant to more or less embody the form of the um, of the nation of Israel, wherein he, Israel has this long line in the Old Testament of being this nation that would always deceive God, uh, back away, whereas Jesus is the one son of Israel who is always obedient to God, who's always kind of showcasing himself in the proper way to act. So that, so I think it's kind of giving that contrast. So Jesus' life is mostly there to give a theological contrast, in my humble opinion. Right. Not necessarily well, a, a way yeah. of giving commandments. I see where you're coming from, yeah. That's an interesting uh, idea. Um, oh, well, one thing I would say, though, is I, I wasn't I wasn't actually saying that Jesus, that Christians regard Jesus as just a good example. What I was actually saying is that because they regard him as part of the Godhead, and because the Godhead is defined as being good, anything that he does must be good. Not so much that he's just a good example, but that by the definition of goodliness, that he must be good. That's what I yeah. was saying. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I was just expanding upon that, but yeah, that's 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 right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like um, Euthyphro is taking, I mean, that that kind of axiom uh, for granted, right? I mean, that that the God's example is to be followed. I mean, he says, you know, uh, and yet when I proceed against my father, they are angry with me. So inconsistent are they when t when in their way of talking when the gods are concerned and when I am concerned. And so, I mean, he says, you know, like there are these stories with, uh, you know. Sons prosecuting their fathers, and yet when I prosecute my father, it's considered wrong. And I mean, I think he's right in, in pointing out that that's a hypocritical uh, way of putting it. If you're, I mean, I think Euthyphro says right afterwards is you know he's he says you know I cannot uh, away with these uh, I cannot away with these stories about the gods, um, and I and I, therefore I suppose people think me wrong. Uh, and he asks you know. Tell me for the love of Zeus whether you believe that they are really true, um, you know. And he's and he says it over again that you know are these tales of the gods true, Euthyphro? Um, and you know I think I think he puts a lot of um, he puts a lot of um, I don't know eggs in that basket. That I mean that um, that Euthyphro almost has to prove um, that that there's a that there's truth to those stories before, or uh, like he has to prove that he believes those stories before Socrates will take um, those examples seriously. Also, just to add something into the mix here, uh, there are actually a plethora of stories of Zeus, uh, not just the one with his relationship with his father Cronus. I mean, we can sure. think of all the times Zeus dressed like that example where he became a swan and 
had sex with various virgins. <laughs> right, very, so very not, not very godly thing to do, I'd say. No, well, in the Greek context, uh, the the gods are never always well behaved. They fight with each other. They bicker. The it's not like the god of it's not like a monotheistic god where he's all he's the main. He doesn't have any competitors. He's just there. No other examples. And oh yeah. Whole, and, that, and we'll be getting to that really soon, I think. And and I think that's that Socrates is in Plato's main contention is that that those stories of the gods are not true that gods are perfect and therefore they would never that, that they would never conflict with one another. I think that's his like main belief and the reason he was prosecuted for it. Um, yeah. And I mean, if you if you want to take this route of, of what the gods do is is our best example. I mean, God, Euthyphro could have done a hell of a lot worse than murdering his father if he wanted to. <laughs> Of yeah, I mean, that girl Zeus did it. Why can't I? Well, I don't think he can turn into a swan, so I think we're safe on that one. He can right. get in the swan costume. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it, it depends how far you want to take as the example, right? I mean, if you're if you're considering, you know, I'm immortal, gods are immortal. Well, then I, you know, in order to do his example, I mean, I'm going to have to scale down my attempts in some way to be more finite, right? And I'm so so, you know, how far does that scaling? Uh, go right. Like, can I? Can I? You know, because Kronos uh, uh, castrated his father. You know, can I? Can I go do that to my father? Um, is that is that totally doable? Like, is that a, is that something that would be considered a pious action if I if I was solving some issue? Like, I I'm not I'm not 100 certain if we could. You know, if you can if you're taking that as axiomatically true, then then that uh, that you could necessarily discount any action, right? I mean, it seems like the gods did almost everything. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, in I, that I way, think, yeah, I think they were kind of like the Simpsons of their day, right? I mean, they just they just covered all the topics and issues of of the day. Yeah, I think Plato's main contention there would be that you can never improve the nature of a member by cutting it off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's well played. Well played. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean. Um. So. Okay. So. I mean. Uh. Euthyphro kind of does. You know. He he kind of goes through his charge, and and, and Socrates is is like, well, I mean. You know, this is probably why I'm being charged with impiety because I can't believe all these stories about the gods. Um, and so he asks, yes, Euthyphro, a few times. Um, you know, do you believe that they're really true? Uh, and and Euthyphro says, you know, yes, Socrates, these things and more wonderful. Uh, yes, Socrates, and things more wonderful still, of which the world is still in ignorance. Um, and I mean, he kind of goes into it. I mean, it, you know, the gods that fought with one another, they had dire quarrels and battles. Um, they're represented in great works and artists. Um, the temples are full of them. And he says, you know, are all these tales true? Um, and, you know, Euthyphro says again, you know, yes, Socrates, and I can, I can tell you other things, you know, that would amaze you um, about all the gods, you know, that, you know, he has, he has this wealth of knowledge of, of all the stories of the gods that, you know, that, uh, that Socrates doesn't have. Um, and, you know, Socrates is trying to get at, you know, are these all these stories true? You know, he wants to, I think he's, he's setting up Euthyphro in that way uh, for his next answer, you know, that, um, you know, the idea of, of, uh, of, you know, the gods being reflections of us, you know, that they have um, very human traits and very, you know, they're, that, they, that they fight amongst each other and they have differences of opinion over what action is right and wrong. Um, and I think, you know, in that way, uh, Euthyphro doesn't realize he's he's falling into that trap. He he's he's um he's kind of going along with the dogmatic assertion that all these stories must be true because uh, you know they are the stories about the gods and therefore you know accurately reflect the gods' uh, stories. It's sort of you know he's he's uh, so in that way. I mean Socrates isn't 
he's not he's not directly challenging that assertion. He's um, affirming that assertion and then pointing out that it leads to a contradiction. It's a, it's yeah. an interesting way yeah, of it's, doing it's, that. It's his classic way of doing things. You know, make sure the other person is completely, you know, dead set on a particular perspective before he moves on. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he he confirms, uh, you know, are these things true twice with Euthyphro, you know, um, before he moves on to the next point. Um, you know, because. Because, I mean, he says, you know, right after, you know, I asked, what is piety? And you say, you know, doing as you do, charging your own father with murder uh, in, in an extreme sense, right? Um, and, you know, he says, you know, I didn't ask you to give me two, three examples of piety, but, you know, to explain the general idea. Um, and, you know, it, it says, you know, do we not recollect that there was one idea or one notion that made the impious impious and the pious pious? Um, yeah. And, you know, he points out that, you know, if what is pious is shown by the examples of the gods, then the examples of the gods shows uh, completely contradictory things to be pious and impious. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really subtle point that he, he gets at, and, and it takes you throw a few times, a few, a few brief clarifications to get to that, that next point, right? Um, you know, to, to, to kind of get into the realization of that. Um, that that somehow you know that that dogmatic assertion that the god you know what is pious is loved of the gods or you know is doing as the gods did um, that can't possibly be the 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 notion of piety there's there's no way that can be true because of all the different notions that the gods tend to have of piety yeah it can't be piety itself it can only be an example of piety mm hmm Exactly. So yeah, exactly. So you have to take each action then. Um, in in that in that definition of piety, there it, each action would have to be judged against an ultimate god standard, right? Mm -hmm. That you'd have to say who was the most pious of the gods, or or something to that effect, right? You, you have to have a reference point for any action, and and also if if this is the kind of uh, if this is the kind of definition you're using, then you can't go anything beyond. Um, the available text and stories about gods you have, the many you're faced with a situation that isn't reflected in something the gods did, then this definition completely is useless. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he outright states it. He says, um, you know, tell me what is the nature of this idea, and then I shall have a standard by which I may look, and by which I may measure actions, whether yours or those of anyone else, and then I should be able to say that such and such action is pious, and un such another is impious. I mean, he, he outright states it. I mean, that you're not giving me the the standard, the, the measure measuring stick by which I could say this action was pious, and and so in that way you've you've avoided answering the question. Yeah, uh, I think that Elijah has to go pretty soon. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. I mean, we're coming right up to the to the second definition of piety that that um, Euthyphro gives. So I think I think that's a really great place to to leave it. Um, does Does anybody have anything um, any thoughts that they you know came up while they, we were discussing, or anything that they want to add in, or you know get us kind of thinking about it for the for the next time? Yeah, I mean, I have one thing. I think that the points that he makes in Euthyphro are are as much of a challenge to Christianity as they are to the Hellenistic Greek view of gods. Mind you, not all of not every one of the criticisms is is, is accurate. Like when he says the gods are warring, well, that one is not accurate. That one that one does not apply to Christianity. But this question, the overall question of whether or not good is defined separately from the god, or does is, is good just what a god does, or does a god do good that is separate from itself? Uh, this question is 
still a big deal. Like this is not a, an easy question, nor is it one that is simply. Ron, I would actually like to double down on what you just said and say it's not only a problem for Christians. I'd say it's also a problem yeah. for realists in general. Because let's look at just a quick example of consequentialism. One could say is something good because it has positive consequences, mm -hmm. or is something consequential, or something positively consequential because it's good. If you what? say, well, it's good because it's it's a it's good because it is consequential. Well, you have a whole new realm of goodness in which you're trying to analyze that just pure consequence won't get. Or, you, or if you say the other one, well, what if the consequence is so? Ar what if this arbitrary consequence uh, is good, but at the same time, how we get there is bad? That seems kind of arbitrary. So. Oh, I know. I, I think what happens. I mean, the beauty of this uh, this this problem is is it. it it, it does what I think is most important. It forces you to take these terms, these moral terms, um, and, and and while the ontological status of these these ideas is important, but it, it forces you to to give an actual definition. You know, a definition that you could use in place of these terms. That's what this kind of a pro this kind of a dilemma does, and it does do it for multiple worldviews, not just for. Uh, for a Christian religion. Yeah, no, I, I, I should have said uh, theists in general, but I'd actually disagree with you about it affecting consequentialism because consequentialism says outright that the good is that which we experience as being good. It doesn't it doesn't go farther than that, and it, it allows it to be subjective to the individual, or some consequentialist theories do. But I, I do agree that there are other problems with those theories. I, I just I don't I don't necessarily think this particular one is an issue with it. Uh, it, it, it is the consequentialist admits that this is good because we define it as being good, and it is not good in and of itself. The difference is any theory that claims that it is good independent of our definition uh, of it as good. That's where the problem starts. Right. So I do agree that it's, it's the realists that have the problem, but I don't think consequentialists are necessarily moral realists. Not all the time. Uh, not all consequentialists are moral realists. Not, they're not exclusive, but when they do try to be exclusive, I think that's when you can apply it to it. Yeah, there are certainly some consequentialists where this would very much apply to their view, but but I wouldn't say broadly speaking, not all of them. Hey guys, I, it's, it's been really great, um, right. John. Again, awesome. thanks for the invite. Um, hey, what? Uh, we're we're going to get you on the next one, and thanks thanks so much for your, for your input, buddy. We really right. appreciate it. Excellent. Yep, I'll be here. Talk to you later. Right. Uh, cool. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really important point, actually. I mean, the idea the idea of, of consequentialism is sort of wrapped up in this in this idea of the good, right? I mean, uh, the good is sort of um, it's it's very base basic to to the idea of consequentialism right I mean there's your definition of good sort of determines what consequences you would consider to be positive or negative right um, sure and and what consequentialist theories ought to do is provide definitions of good uh, that, that more or less match our experience of good but again that's not claiming that this experience like the the, the, the thing is, is that I don't think you get into any trouble at all if what you say is we're defining it as good because we experience it as being good. Because we're not claiming that it actually is good. That good is anything other than that which we experience to be good. We're not claiming that it is independent of our experience. And in that sense, you can avoid the problem simply by Wait, not is, claiming that it is, is independent. Is it the experience itself that's good, or is it the outcome of the experiences? Because I think it's, that's where the consequence would, uh, would be placed. 
Well, no, I mean, it's the, the, it's, it is the experiences that result from our actions that are good. It is the, the, the experiences of things that are good themselves. But the consequences of our experience is kind of uh, an odd term because that is saying that the, our experiences cause things. And I don't think that that's accurate. Some of our actions may cause things. And in that sense, are, are, what I think you're trying to get at is that actions and consequentialist systems by themselves do not have any moral value. It is only the consequences of them. And what I'm saying is that if we take utilitarian as an example, then the experiences are the consequences that we're concerned with. So my experience of goodliness as a result of an action is what has moral value rather than the action itself. I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. No, I think I think that's I think that's really uh, I like I like where you're going with that. But you know, I think that's that's really fertile ground for our next discussion. Um, I mean, because we do sure. get into the idea of of the uh, you know the valuation system by which pious and impious is actually determined. And so there's 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 very much there there's very much a lot of a lot of ground we can cover with that. So that's oh, that's awesome, man. Um, cool. You know, guys, I'm just gonna you know like I like I said, uh, I'm just gonna put on some uh, really abrasive uh, Canadian music to play us out and then I'll go off air and then as soon as that that stops if you guys want to keep listening you can but uh, we, we can uh, and we can uh, chat and debrief about this uh, this little hangout uh, as much as you guys want All but right. but with that I mean I think I'll, I'll wrap up the broadcast I think we're just coming up on an hour and a half here now so we'll uh, we'll wrap it up thank everybody for for viewing and watching and uh, and uh, please please view again the next time when we come in for part two um, what are we gonna call this one next one um, I like I like Euthyphro what a douche for the part one um, but I think I think for the next one maybe um, is it good or uh, what uh, what the hell do you mean or uh, well we'll see that we'll we'll see that <laughs> yeah okay sure well if you guys have any suggestions for a clever snappy title then please please send them in indeed cool guys all right well thanks thank you very much we'll uh, we'll music uh, play in here and uh, hope you guys uh, had a great time thanks. <laughs> Look at the mirror! You're rubbing in my head! Too patriot! So drunk, I can't bend! Look you on the heart! We're a free fight! Too strong and free blood! God, there he is, you Get a bus for my lungs with a bone.